Hi everyone, I'm John Asante, the managing producer of Telescope. I'm guest hosting this week's episodes along with Myanham's senior editor, Catherine St. Louis. You'll hear from her later this week. Telescope is back after a bit of a break. We wanted to take some time to try and make sense of this moment. Right now, as many others have put it lately, we're going through not one, but two pandemics, COVID and racism. Three weeks ago, Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin killed George Floyd by kneeling on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. Since then, hundreds of thousands of people have taken to the streets all across the world to speak out against police brutality. Even as we're told the safest place to be is inside. Like so many other Black people across the nation, I said yet again, enough is enough. I cannot stand to see someone who looks like me senselessly killed by the police again. So I got out there on the streets of Los Angeles to make my voice heard. It's not the first time we've witnessed protests and uprisings after the killing of a Black man at the hands of police. Eric Garner, Michael Brown, Freddie Gray. Revisiting this list is emotionally exhausting. But there's something very unique about what we're seeing now. And yes, there have been countless comparisons to the civil rights movement. Yet the makeup of the protesters is different. I saw more white, Latinx, Asian, and Native American allies out there than I expected, marching with my Black brothers and sisters. There are definitely some experienced protesters out there, but the marches are filled with first-timers too, people for whom this moment was the tipping point. From Neon Hum Media, this is Telescope. I'm John Asante. On Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for the foreseeable future, we're going to bring you stories of people who are far away, up close, and how each of us are learning to live through this moment. This week, we're bringing you three episodes about this moment. On Wednesday, we'll focus on the relationship between social media, the pandemic, and anti-racist protests. And on Friday, we'll talk with award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien about how the media is handling this moment. But first, on today's episode, stories of two activists who took different paths to becoming leaders in the movement to protect Black lives from police brutality. When Casey Short was a kid, his younger brother was really friendly. He used to see cops and yell out to them, Hey, how you doing? Eventually, their mom put a stop to that. But my mom told me that at like age 12, you know, you gotta be careful because right now you're cute because you're a little black boy, but when you become a black man, cops are gonna come over and feel that you're a threat. They're gonna think about pulling their gun out before asking questions, but they don't really understand that you're just living your life, you know, minding your own business, doing whatever you're doing, you know, being a good citizen, but the color of your skin is a target for them. They were kids, but they got the message. Casey and his brother grew up in Greensburg, Pennsylvania, a predominantly white town more than 85% according to the 2010 census. But these days, Casey lives in San Diego. And while San Diego is more diverse than Greensburg, Casey and other Black people face racism wherever they live, even if it's not outwardly obvious. 
I see how people treat me when I have the uniform on, you know, when I'm clean cut. People treat me like, you know, thank you for your service. I bought your handshakes. People will buy me drinks. Kids come up to me asking me, like, you know, like, I want to be like you when I grow up. But then I noticed, like, if I'm in my civilian clothes, so say I have, like, a Dodgers hat on, you know, I'm in civilian clothes, I have, like, a chain on. They'll think, like, I'm the most thugged out dude ever. And I'm just like, man, I'm just KC, man. Like, this is just my style. This is just who I am. So I think a lot of people have that ignorance in them where they feel like you're in the military. You don't know what it's like to be out here in these streets. And I'm just like, no, man, I definitely do know what it's like to be in the streets. I know what it looks like to be racial profiled by a police officer. KC knows what it feels like to be profiled by a cop. But he also kind of knows what it's like to be a cop. Casey is a veteran. He served as military police in the army for 11 years, including two tours in Afghanistan. These days, he spends most of his time going to college. He's also out of active military duty, but still in the reserves. It means he could still be deployed during wartime. He knows what it means to protect our country. But he also knows the problematic history of policing in America. He was in his bed, just waking up, when he first saw that video. Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin with his knee on George Floyd's neck for over eight minutes. And it changed him. Like, I started crying, actually, when I saw the video of George Floyd. And I felt it in my heart, like, hey, man, like, I have to do something. Being isolated on lockdown and unable to leave the house made him really focus in a sustained way on what had happened to George. And that was a turning point for him. Casey connected all the dots, and well, he just couldn't take it anymore. I think that if I was just like living a normal everyday life, where I would just be like, you know, oh, it's just like another shooting that's happened, and you know, this is wrong, and you know, in my heart, I would know it's wrong, but I didn't, I wouldn't do anything. You know, I would make a Facebook post, but I wouldn't do anything more than that. So that's why, to me, I was just like, okay, it gave me the opportunity to actually look into like these cases, to look into these situations, because after a while. It's no longer just a bunch of bad cops just, you know, killing innocent people of color. Now it's starting to become like a norm. And then to have videos back to back of like racial injustices that have gone, you know, all the way worldwide. To me, I was just like, okay, I have to do something like I can't let this happen anymore. I don't want to hear about any more hashtags. I really don't want to have to cry any more tears watching a video like what I saw with George Floyd. Then about 20 minutes inland from where Casey lives in downtown San Diego, there was the controversial arrest of a Black man named Amari Johnson. He was originally contacted for smoking in public, but arrested on suspicion of assaulting a police officer. The week following the arrest, body cam footage became public. Then on the video, there was no assault whatsoever. It was just like, okay, I can fight, I can fight the battle against police brutality, you know, anywhere in San Diego. But with that happening in La Mesa, that was like, okay, then La Mesa, you have to take care of your own backyard. So I was just like, okay, let's make the protest happen in La Mesa. So KC, who had only been to one protest in his whole life, became an organizer, basically overnight. Just four days after Amari's unjust arrest, KC started to put together his first protest on his home turf in La Mesa. And, um, you know, I put out my, uh, my little um, 
flyer over there to them. And then before I knew it, you know, I didn't expect um, it to have such a positive feedback. I honestly thought it was going to be less than 100 people. I actually met up with a my lady the night before who donated a bunch of masks, like 150 masks for me. And I was sitting there thinking like, oh, I'm going to have an excess of number of masks. You know, there'll probably won't even be 150 people there. So to go, go there and see, you know, a thousand people there, it was just like, wow. And then for it to keep on growing and growing and have so much love from the city, like it was such a powerful moment in my life. Maybe one of the most powerful moments I've ever, ever felt in my entire life, bringing so many people together with so many different backgrounds, all for the same cause, you know, because I think a lot of people felt like they wanted to protest, but no one took the initiative to do it. So I kind of took it upon myself that, hey, if I don't do it, then nobody else is going to do it. 1,000 people at his first protest. The group marched through downtown La Mesa, chanting George Floyd and I Can't Breathe. They wanted people to know they were tired of Black men being unfairly targeted. Casey was shocked that so many people marched with him, that so many people were as tired of mistreatment as he was. The protest was peaceful. At one point, they marched onto Interstate 8, one of San Diego's major highways, with hundreds of protesters filling the lanes, signs up and chanting. But when the protesters started to disperse and go home, he said that's when things took a turn with reports of looting and vandalism. And I am standing in front of one of the businesses that was looted over the weekend. This is Play It Again Sports. You know, the owner told me that he was out here when what was a protest for a cause with a message turned into something much different. And he said he could see very clearly the difference between the people that were out here trying to be heard and protest peacefully. And then when night came, the people that were doing anything but. So we know with rioting and looting, that destroys the whole message because all the negative things that happen with rioting and looting, they take over the entire point of the protest. Like people aren't going to remember that the protest was peaceful for four hours. People are going to remember that the banks got burnt down. People are going to remember that the emergency vehicle was caught on fire. People won't remember that the peaceful protest happened for four hours. Casey says protesters should not be mistaken for looters. They're not one and the same. Since then, he has helped organize at least two more protests, one in downtown San Diego and one in Santee. It's a suburb in San Diego's East County that sometimes goes by Clanty. The mayor of Santee says the city is working to overcome its long history of racism, which suffered a series of setbacks before the recent protests. A month ago, a man wore a Ku Klux Klan hood while shopping at a Vons. He was interviewed by deputies and said it was a face covering that he didn't intend to wear as a racial statement no charges were filed. Right now, protests aren't just happening in big cities like L.A., New York, Philly. They're happening in small towns, in suburbs, some that are majority white. But it's one thing to protest in a mostly white neighborhood and another to go into a white supremacist stronghold. Casey was nervous. I ain't going to lie to you. I probably wasn't sleeping <laughs> that much because I just didn't know what could happen. People warned him. They wanted to say that Santee was the most racist place ever, you know, and that I should never have a protest there and don't invite people there because it was super unsafe and people could get killed. And they were telling me, like, you're going to have blood on your hands and you're going to possibly start another civil war. But Casey partnered with a couple of black Santee residents who wanted to protest racial injustice. A council member even said he would join. The protest was happening on June 7th. 
it probably about like three to four hundred people came out there. So it was it was definitely not, you know, into the thousands like La Mesa, but it was definitely very powerful because even if it was just a hundred people that came out there, it would still make a powerful message for people in Santee. And most of the protesters chanting Black Lives Matter were white. So if you live in a racist place and you're willing to show your face and say, hey, we're done. We don't we don't stand for racism. You know, we don't we will never let racism stay here. You know, it took a lot of courage from a lot of people. Some Santee residents made the protesters know they were not welcome. And the sad part was is that during my protest yesterday, we did go face to face with some neo-Nazis. We did go face to face with some Klansmen, but we didn't back down. We kept our voices being heard. We kept our marching. Well, they would scream white power. You know, we didn't let that stop us. At the end of the day, we showed them peace. You know, no matter how much they were trying to agitate us, we showed them peace. There was something about that protest that made Casey feel like the movement was working. And Santee is a situation where something bad should have happened, you know, but it didn't. Remember that guy who wore a Klan hood to Vons? That was a month ago. And it wasn't the only time that happened. Just a few days later, another man wore a mask with a swastika on it at a food for less, also in Santee, in broad daylight. If Casey could get hundreds of white residents to take to the streets to show support for Black people in a place like this, this was something. This was big. They came out and supported us to the utmost. Older people from older generations, people that grew up in the 60s and 70s came out and supported us. So that just shows you how powerful that these movements are and that this change can actually happen. Because at the end of the day, a lot of people don't even realize that sometimes a change only just takes a conversation between two people that have two opposite sides that come to an understanding. Casey has never seen this type of unity before. Seeing the news reports of the tens of thousands protesting in Hollywood or marching in the streets in Paris, it makes him feel good. But something that doesn't make him feel good is the reaction from the White House. Remember, Casey served in Afghanistan at a time when the U.S. was trying to fight oppressive rule there, ostensibly to fight tyranny. So after the Trump administration ordered the military to rout peaceful protesters near the White House, Casey couldn't help but see the irony. And you're telling them, oh, if you loot, we shoot. Like, to me, being a veteran, someone that puts my life on the line, you know, whenever the army has ever called me to do so, to see a president go ahead and just be like, oh, well, you know, I'll use military action against these people. I just thought it was just so wrong. And I feel like it just showed terrible leadership skills. Some people think that the pandemic had a lot to do with the intensity of these protests. Simply put, a lot of Americans are unemployed and under lockdown there were fewer distractions. Black people are dying of COVID at disproportionately higher rates than whites. The twin pandemics are coming for us, and we decided to take a stand with a lot of allies. Casey doesn't want this moment to be just a dot on the timeline. He hopes that leaders, especially locally in San Diego, take this moment to reflect, to listen, and to create systemic change police force defunded and rebuilt with the input of the Black community. 
Imagine if no one videotaped what happened to George Floyd. Imagine if no one videotaped what happened to Ahmaud Arbery. And a lot of people don't mention Breonna Taylor because she's not being videotaped either. But at the end of the day, you know, that situation was even worse. You know, for cops to kill people innocently in your own apartment just to be killed. You know, then what are they going to say? Oh, we're sorry to your family. It shouldn't have happened because we were at the wrong address. Like, no, that's not right. It's not right for people to die because of the color of their skin. It's not right to people to die because of accidents made by the police. So I think the next change that we have to do, especially out here in San Diego, is, you know, we're going to push for um, defunding the police or come up with a new justice system that's fair for everyone. And, you know, get more people of color in, in city council, get more people to actually represent us. He's already seen positive changes come out of the marches. Charges against Amari Johnson, the black man arrested in La Mesa, they were dropped. And the San Diego PD and La Mesa PD banned knee-to-neck chokeholds. But taking a step back, Casey sees it all as a double-edged sword. On one hand, the impact these protests are having around the world is unmistakable. You're seeing proposals to overhaul police departments in Los Angeles, Minneapolis, and Richmond, Virginia. But at the same time, these protests, these large crowds of people marching shoulder to shoulder, spending long periods of time in close proximity to each other, could help fuel a second wave of COVID-19, one that experts predict could be worse than the first. So I think a lot of people are just like, COVID, it doesn't even matter to us anymore because now we have to make our voices heard and the powers and numbers. And I think that's why a lot of people just have in the back of their heads, they don't even remember about six feet distance. But I will say this, that at the protests, 100% of the people are wearing masks. A month from now, Casey thinks he'll still be hitting the streets protesting. But for me to see the power that happened during that protest, I would definitely say 100% that, you know, I do know that my life has definitely changed from that. And for sure, I'm going to be fighting, you know, fighting to the day I D.I.E. I'm definitely going to be about that. Thanks so much to Casey Short for sharing his story of becoming a protester and very quickly a leader in activism in this moment. Next, we are going to hear from another protester, But this time, it's someone who has been doing this for a while, as one of the most visible activists for Black Lives Matter here in Los Angeles. Melina Abdullah is tired. I know I'm getting casual, but I'm super tired. Literally tired. Right now, it's just after 5 p.m. and she's starting an interview. That day, Friday, June 5th, would have been Breonna Taylor's 27th birthday. Before these past few weeks, Melina already had a very full life. She's the chair of the Department of Pan-African Studies at Cal State LA. She's also a single mom to three kids, ages 16, 13, and 10, who have all been home from school for months because of COVID. And if that doesn't already sound overwhelming, Melina also devoted a lot of her time to organizing with Black Lives Matter LA, which she co-founded. So that was kind of my life before the murder of George Floyd. Um, is trying to find the right balance. Um, Since the murder of George Floyd and the constancy of the work around the demand for justice, I've had to have pretty candid conversations with my children about, you know, them having to kind of fend for themselves for a little bit while this moment moves. Thankfully, I have children who were raised in the movement, so they're not mad at it. You know, the safer at home has also meant that 
you know, I had been doing a lot of cooking, a lot of um, kind of that kind of care for my children. We haven't had a home-cooked meal in two weeks, right, because I have to do this work. And so, you know, that's kind of what it's meant. Let's back up. About a month ago, actually exactly one week before George Floyd was murdered, Black Lives Matter LA launched a campaign in coalition with other groups to remake the city's budget. They pointed out that the budget was almost comically lopsided in favor of cops, about $3 billion overall, or 54% of the city's unrestricted funds. And under the city's new, in the age of COVID budget, the ratio had become even more absurd. While almost every department of the city was seeing its budget stagnate or cut, the LAPD was getting more money, about $120 million. And a lot of that money was going to salaries. Cops were getting raises and bonuses that their union had negotiated. The idea of defunding the police, it's something Black Lives Matter LA had been organizing around for years. And this year, they proposed an alternative vision of the city's budget. They called it the People's Budget. This year, there was special kind of uh, outrage around the budget because the mayor proposed to increase the budget of LAPD as he slashed the budgets of almost every other department and furloughed 16,000 workers. And this is in the midst of a health pandemic with an economic fallout where the resources could better be used by things like health care and economic resources for Angelenos. Melina and the other organizers were very aware of COVID, knew that the virus was hitting Black and brown communities especially hard. But leading up to the people's budget, um, really kind of one of the things that informed the people's budget was a set of demands that Black leaders in Los Angeles all signed off on. A set of 55 demands that get to the COVID-19 crisis and its disparate impact on Black people. And we all agree that the underlying condition that's primary is the underlying condition of anti-Black racism. The virus is a threat. So is police brutality. So they made a plan to organize around their proposed budget while safely social distancing. The campaign would be online. It was super effective. So we did Twitter storms, we did public comment at city council meetings, and that's kind of the work that we were engaged in. The plan seemed to be working. People were talking about the budget, calling up their council members, making a difference from a distance. But then May 25th happened. Soon after George Floyd died on Monday, a video emerged. These pictures have angered and stunned people around the world. Hundreds of people stormed the streets of Minneapolis overnight after an African-American man was tragically killed during an encounter with the police. International interest was suddenly laser-focused on Black Lives Matter. Bail funds were quickly overwhelmed with donations. One Los Angeles activist group announced recently that they'd received over $1 million in donations and that they'd be redistributing the funds to other groups like Black Lives Matter. As of this week, that number had climbed even higher, just over $2.5 million. We've wanted this awakening. We welcome it, we're thankful for it, and it's overwhelming, right? So 
Um, we're grateful that people want to be involved. You know, personal friends keep texting me asking what they can do, but also people are reaching out so rapidly that it's very difficult to keep up. And so we appreciate this mass awakening and are trying to keep up with, you know, what this means for the movement. I'm encouraged that people are standing on the side of justice. You know, almost uniformly, people are outraged by the murder of George Floyd. The tsunami of interest is new, but the organizing isn't. Melina and the other Black Lives Matter activists have been at this for a long time. For over two years, Black Lives Matter has been organizing weekly protests at the Los Angeles courthouse downtown, calling for the DA, Jackie Lacey, to resign. The protests regularly attracted about 50 people, sometimes a couple hundred. Now, everything's different. Every day, there are a half a dozen protests all around the city. Hundreds or thousands of people at each one. And when a protest is officially organized by Black Lives Matter, the response has been overwhelming. They organized one protest at the house of LA's mayor, Eric Garcetti, and kept it private at first, not posting the plan publicly. When they arrived, set up, and posted the location online, thousands of people showed up, Melina said. It's invigorating to be in those protests. The police response at the protests is what makes me nervous, what gives me anxiety, especially as I go into these protests with my children. There are moments when we see police moving in, and um, we know that for me, especially if my children are there, it's time to go. So we try to be very aware, and we try to be, we are protective of the children. Police, I think many of them are taking these protests personally, and they're allowing their emotions to get in the way of their supposed job. Two, I think that policing as an institute, as a system, is inherently brutal. And um, what we've seen, especially with the current occupant of the White House, telling police that they have basically a blank check to beat up protesters, to beat up Black people, I think, you know, many of these officers have heard that and are taking as many liberties as possible. If you listen to any interview with Melina recently, you'll hear the sound every couple minutes. Here's producer Carla Green asking her about it. I just wanted to ask the email notifications that I have heard coming through, are those all like Black Lives Matter things that are just happening while we're talking or is- Yes. No. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. It was incessant. I'll give an example. I, I did an interview um, yesterday and it took about 15 minutes. And when I came back, there were 331 new text messages. So it's very difficult to keep up with this work, but we're committed to keeping up with the work, right? Some of that work has been fielding the anxious, white guilt-ridden messages that pretty much every Black person has been forced to deal with these past couple weeks directed at Melina tenfold as a very public representative of Black Lives Matter. Yes, every white friend is texting me saying how badly they feel about this. That's nice, and we need you to do something about it. And so we're very grateful to have a partner organization called White People for Black Lives 
um, which does a lot of the work in bringing white folks into the movement and really deburdening us black folks with having to explain racism or re-traumatize ourselves by retelling our experiences. Um, white People for Black Lives does a lot of that political education and then does a good job of incorporating them, bringing them into the movement. Suddenly, everyone was talking about all the things that Black Lives Matter activists had been talking about for years. Police brutality, even defunding the police, about the people's budget. So George Floyd's murder um, absolutely opened the world's eyes to the viciousness of police. Um, so people who didn't get it, got it. You could not watch that video and pretend that you didn't know or you don't know how vicious police can be. So all of a sudden, the calls to defund the police don't sound quite so radical when you see why we're saying defund the police. This moment won't last forever, but we can do all we can to ensure that this moment feeds into a long-term movement. And so I'm committed to staying up all night as often as I need to. And these past few weeks, Melina's had to. I spend about two to three hours sleeping each day. It also means that I have to constantly multitask. Thankfully, Black Lives Matter is a, we practice something called group-centered leadership, which means that there's many of us carrying the work. So today is the first day that one of our younger members is here with me. Yesterday, I was kind of really feeling it. And I called uh, Megan and just said, can you just come and sit next to me? <laughs> so she's been here all day since nine o'clock this morning. And um, it feels a little lighter with her here, but things have changed, you know? It's become almost impossible to socially distance at the protests that have been happening daily all over Los Angeles. But the world's changed in the past two weeks. COVID's still a threat, but now a lot of people are asking themselves if it should keep them from taking the streets when it's to protest another threat Black people face every day, dying by cop. I mean, the reason I'm willing to take the risk is because I'm a single mom of three kids. Um, my greatest concern is their safety. And I know that as we talk about uh, safety, a lot of folks think that that means policing or they think that that means these kind of systems that have been set up to protect white capitalism. But for black people, more police is actually a threat and so despite, you know, the current health pandemic, it's important that I take whatever steps need to be taken and whatever risks need to be taken to protect my three children. And I'm going to keep doing it until it's clear that, you know, my children don't have to worry about targets on their backs. On May 26th, the day after George Floyd was murdered, an article came out in the LA Times. In it, the president of the local police union defended the mayor's proposed budget, handing out raises to the LAPD and furloughs to most other city departments. The union president said, quote, in addition to being police officers, we are also now therapists, drug treatment counselors, social workers, and EMTs, among many other things. It was a quote that got a lot of outrage attention from activists at the time. But the idea that police should be acting like social workers 
can be trusted to act like social workers has long been treated like it's uncontroversial. The idea that cops should be in schools and in hospitals and in parks, that they should be everywhere and be given billions of dollars to do it. Suddenly, it's a political position that's become untenable. We want the police defunded, right? Two, we want spaces of abolition, right? So where police are no longer present at our children's schools. We want to abolish police in parks. We want to restrict them to the things that they're actually supposed to be doing by, you know, by design. They're supposed to be doing particular things, none of which we agree <laughs> agree with, right? But they're definitely not supposed to be serving as social workers or EMTs or drug rehabilitation counselors. I think what's on the table is also demanding that police stick to their lane and shrinking back this expansionist approach to policing, you know, rolling back what we call mission creep, right? That if we need a social worker, let's call a social worker. If we need a mental health provider, let's call a mental health provider. Um, we don't need police doing jobs that they have no business and no expertise in doing. On Wednesday, June 3rd, nine days after George Floyd was murdered, after the city's budget was supposedly approved, Garcetti made an announcement. He said he'd be looking for cuts of up to $150 million of the LAPD's budget. That's about 5% of their budget, basically equal to the plan raises and bonuses for cops. But it was the first real concession the People's Budget campaign had managed to get. It's not nearly enough, Molina says. It feels like everything's on the table. You know, it feels like the power of protest is working. Just this morning, Monday, June 15th, People's Budget activists made a presentation to a group of city council members. They suggested that the city shrink the LAPD's budget to one-tenth of its current size, from 54% of the mayor's general fund to just under 6%. Now, there's a big question that's been hovering over these past couple weeks. Why now? Why did George Floyd's murder spark the international movement that it did? Why not Breonna Taylor, who was killed in her sleep just three months ago? Why not Ahmaud Arbery, Sandra Bland, Trayvon Martin, or Tamir Rice, who was just 12 years old when police shot him dead, or Eric Gardner, who died saying the exact same words as George Floyd? I can't breathe. The horrible truth is that there have been over 1,000 Black people killed by police in America in just the past six years, since Michael Brown's murder sparked the uprising in Ferguson in 2014. Dozens of viral videos of Black death at the hands of cops. Why George Floyd? It's a question that's impossible to answer. Maybe, in part, it had to do with COVID. So many people locked inside their homes, with social media serving as their only connection to the outside world, forced to sit with the terrible reality of what happened to George Floyd, and what's happened to so many other Black people brutalized and killed by police in this country. This might have just been one murder too many. But the answer also has to do with people like Molina and KC. When George Floyd was murdered, Molina had already been doing this work for years. She was already well acquainted with the pain of seeing another Black person murdered by police, and the seemingly inevitable pain of knowing that most people won't care. And then there's KC, 
a black man who's lived his whole life with the truth of police brutality, but was inspired to organize a protest, his first ever, in response to the murder of George Floyd and the police brutality he saw in his own town. It's the Molinas of the world, with their years of experience, and the Caseys of the world, with their fresh and raw outrage, that have created this moment we're in, where Casey's enthusiasm for change can be funneled into a movement that Molina and other activists have been building for years. A movement with specific demands and a vision of how the world could be different. Together, they might be able to do something that seemed impossible for a long time. To force white people to confront the violent police system that they've silently co-signed their whole lives. And to force people in power to imagine a world without police. Or at least without policing in the form it's taken since the country's founding. Racist, brutal, and anti-black to its bones. They might be able to change things if they don't let up. If we don't let up. If we all refuse to allow things to go back to normal. If we all agree that normal is unacceptable. Special thanks to Melina Abdullah and Casey Short for sharing their stories. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Every week, we receive emails, private messages on Twitter, and posts on Facebook from listeners. At the end of every episode, we share sounds from around the world to hear what your lives are like and what you're going through. But this week, we're bringing you a moment from across the globe that stuck out to us. Anti-racist protests aren't just happening in the U.S. They are spreading to places like Europe, South America, Australia. On Sunday, June 7th, a group of people in Bristol, England, tore down a statue of the slave trader Edward Colston and pushed the statue into Bristol Harbor. <laughs> Telescope is made possible by the world-class team of producers, editors, and engineers that make up Neon Hum Media. I'm John Asante, the managing producer of Telescope. Today's episode was produced by Joanna Clay and Carla Green. It was edited by Catherine St. Louis, Jonathan Hirsch, and Vikram Patel. Our engineer is Scott Somerville. Thanks to Matt McGinley for our theme music, and to Blue Dot Sessions for additional tracks you hear on this episode. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Nyanha Media. You can also join our Facebook group by searching for Telescope. If you like the show, please remember to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. We want to stay connected with you during this unprecedented time in our history, so please don't be shy. Share your stories with us. Our DMs are open. And if you have a story of life in isolation because of the coronavirus that you want to share with us, please email us at pitches at neonhum.com. I'm John Asante. Thank you, and we'll talk with you on Wednesday, when we'll be taking a look at how several viral videos on social media are sparking very public interest honest conversations about the two pandemics. <laughs>